From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Margo Adler. Religious liberty, it's a right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution, but one expert says the colonial history behind that freedom is often forgotten. I think every school child should know the name of Mary Dyer, who was a Quaker who was hung from the tree in Boston Commons by the Puritans for the crime of being a Quaker. We'll also hear from one mayor who wants to bring some religious redemption to his city of Birmingham. This country is good about finding reasons not to pray. But the first time a tsunami or a cyclone hit, the very first thing out of our mouth is, oh God. On today's show, the freedom of religion, coming up after the news. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Margo Adler. On today's program, we tackle the first freedom written in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. For over 200 years, Americans in our courts and in our legislatures have fought over the meaning of those 16 words. For instance, how high should the wall be separating church from state? How far can we go in exercising our freedom of religion in the military, in prisons, in our schools? And what are the boundaries? We'll put these questions to our guests throughout the show. Later, we'll also tell you about a new religious symbol you can find engraved at Arlington Cemetery. But first, it's not unusual for politicians to make public references to faith. But in Birmingham, Alabama, some residents there feel uncomfortable that the mayor is using his bully pulpit to preach the word of God. Tanya Ott reports. Alabamians are used to religion permeating life. Social introductions often include what church a person attends, and business deals are regularly made during Sunday morning fellowship. But a few weeks ago, when Birmingham Mayor Larry Langford came to City Hall bolstered by an army of pastors, it raised eyebrows. The mayor and this council, we pale in comparison to the power that the church possesses in this city. In an official proclamation, Langford compared Birmingham's crime rate to that of the Old Testament city of Nineveh. He accused city residents of turning their backs on God and called for an official day of prayer. With this event, he alienated many of Birmingham's citizens and used the Christian faith as a manipulation tool for his own agenda. Birmingham resident Ben Knox is a Christian, but says the mayor's proclamation bothered him. He emailed asking Langford to reconsider and got a response that said, quote, As a Christian, you should be the first to recognize the power of prayer. Cops can only lock up the problem. The blood of Jesus can solve the problem. Mayor Langford says he stands by his words. This country is good about finding reasons not to pray. But the first time a tsunami or a cyclone hit, the very first thing out of our mouth is, oh, God. Well, listen, since everything ends with him, I'm saying let's begin it with him. I've, I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, attorneys usually don't have a hard time expressing themselves. But in this case, Allison Neal does. She's with the Alabama Office of the American Civil Liberties Union. She says while Langford, the individual, has a right to engage in vigorous free speech about religion, Langford, the mayor, doesn't. 
you know, the government should not be in the business of, of endorsing religion and dividing Americans along religious lines. And I think that, that the proclamation is a clear example of that. Langford says he feels like Christianity is under attack in the U.S. I'm not out here campaigning against anybody's belief or non-belief and quit campaigning against mine because I'm not going to change mine any more than you're going to change yours. Langford says he thinks God chose him to be mayor for a reason, and each Friday morning he holds a Bible study in city council chambers. You can't say you believe and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and then hate your brother. Employees aren't required to attend, but Langford encourages them. He also welcomes residents like magazine publisher Sandy Patterson. The fact that he does pray and the fact that I think he seeks uh, God's direction and what he does puts his feet on the ground a little bit better. I, I would much rather have uh, Mayor Langford down here and being questioned about, you know, question of uh, separation of the church and state than see what we've got in New York and some other places. The mayor has galvanized a lot of conversation about morals and corruption, both societies and his own. Langford is being sued for allegedly taking kickbacks for government contracts, and a federal grand jury is also investigating him. Criminal charges could result. At the mayor's recent day of prayer to combat crime, more than a thousand people packed the auditorium. They donned sackcloth to show humbleness before God. And as a shofar blew and pastors dumped ashes on a makeshift altar, the mayor approached a podium bearing the city seal. For those who can go on your knees, go on your knees, and let's beg God's forgiveness for our sins. Kyle Whitmire, a reporter and political columnist for Birmingham Weekly newspaper, was in the audience. There was a lot more said about Mayor Lankford and how God had made him mayor of Birmingham, uh, much more so than any talk about crime. And at the end of this this event, uh, you know, and I'd, I had to ask myself, whose crime is this really about? Critics charge the mayor is using religious rhetoric to set himself up as a David to the government's Goliath, that he's courting Birmingham's black Christians in hopes of getting a sympathetic jury pool. Larry Langford is real smart, very cagey. Chris Doss is a Baptist preacher, former Alabama senator, and constitutional law expert who's known Larry Langford for decades. He says the mayor is possibly breaking the law with his mix of religion and politics. But I would say that Larry's behavior basically was the same before any indictment or even any threat of an indictment. Larry Langford says he'll continue talking about Jesus and praying publicly, and he may need those prayers. In addition to the grand jury investigation, the American Civil Liberties Union is looking into possible violations of separation of church and state. Another lawsuit could be on the way. For Justice Talking, I'm Tanya Ott in Birmingham. When the Founding Fathers wrote the First Amendment, what did they actually mean when it came to the freedom of religion? Stephen Waldman, author of Founding Faith, Providence, Politics, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America, says the answer may surprise you. He argues the culture wars have warped our understanding of the history of religious liberty in our country. There's this sense in the modern debates that if you're 
pro-religion, that you're anti-separation of church and state. And if you support separation of church and state, that that must mean you want to minimize religion. And that dichotomy would have been completely meaningless to the founding fathers. Their basic approach was that they wanted to encourage religion. They thought that was crucially important, but they thought that the best way of encouraging religion was to leave it alone, to have the government get out of the way, which is a radically different approach from what had been going on in the colonies at that time. You also discuss several common myths in your book about religious freedom and the country's origins. For example, that America was settled as a bastion for religious freedom. That's not true? No, I mean, it was settled by people who wanted to set up Christian paradises of a very specific sort at the expense of everyone else who didn't agree with them. So in the North, the Puritans tried to create a Puritan society, but they horribly persecuted Quakers, for instance. I mean, I think every schoolchild should know the name of Mary Dyer, who was a Quaker who was hung from the tree in Boston Commons by the Puritans for the crime of being a Quaker. Three others were executed that way as well. And in the South, the Anglicans persecuted horribly the Baptists. And almost anywhere you went in the colonies, the majority denomination, Protestant denomination usually, was, was busy uh, in some way persecuting everyone else. So if most of the colonies were established to promote a particular religion and religious persecution was not uncommon, as you said, how did we end up with religious freedom? Well, it started off at the national level where, where Madison, Jefferson, and others started to look back at the uh, experiences and say, well, on the national level, we need to try a different approach. So in the Constitution, the first step that they took was to say that anyone could hold public office. And this sounds like a kind of an obvious thing right now. But at the point of the Constitution, 11 of the 13 colonies had rules that said people of particular religions couldn't hold office. Catholics, Jews, Unitarians basically were not allowed to hold office in the state. So the first thing they did was saying, well, at the national level, it's open to everyone. That was a dramatic step. Then with the passage of the Bill of Rights, uh, they took an additional step, which was to further guarantee uh, religious freedom and and create a separation of church and state. Now, one thing that is often forgotten is that it was a state's rights compromise. In other words, I keep using the words national government. Part of the compromise was to say, we'll have this kind of separation at the national level, but at the state level, you can do whatever you want. If you want to still have an official state religion in Massachusetts, fine. If you want to ban Catholics in South Carolina, fine. All of that actually was left, left standing by the passage of the Bill of Rights and only very gradually changed over the next 200 years, especially after the Civil War. You write that in the Constitution, the original intent was intentionally murky. Why would the founders want this kind of ambiguity? Do we gain anything from this murkiness since Americans continue to fight over the meaning of religious freedom today? Well, we have to remember that the Constitution was not just sort of written by James Madison, you know, in his study and then shipped directly off to the National Archives to be put under glass. This went through Congress. It went through a House committee and a Senate committee and a conference committee. And we have to remember that though they were statesmen and philosophers, they were also politicians. And this is in some ways no different than what we have now. 
where sometimes the art of the possible has to do with making things vague in order to paper over differences. So the ambiguity came about because that was the way to get it passed. Do I think it's a good thing? No, I think it would have been helpful if they had been a little bit more clear about what they meant by an establishment of religion. Part of what happened was that if they had been clearer about it, the Bill of Rights might not have passed or might not have passed in, in the form that Madison was hoping to get it. Stephen Waldman is the author of Founding Faith, Providence, Politics, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America. He is also editor-in-chief of BeliefNet.com. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. Coming up, two advocates for religious freedom speak out on the intersection of religion, society, and politics, such as in the race for president. To ask questions, as uh, one of the hosts did in one of those debates, what's your greatest sin? Senator John Edwards was then in the race and said, you know, that's really between God and myself. That was the best answer any candidate has given on a religion question so far through this religion-saturated presidential primary season. Look, the Democratic Party, smart this time from a political standpoint, is saying we're not writing off the religious vote, whether it's the Christian vote, whether it's the uh, Catholic vote, we're not going to write it off. I'm not so sure what's going to happen on the other side, on the Republican side. Maybe they are writing off the religious vote. I don't know. Stay with us. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. Today we're talking about freedom of religion, and we thought we'd invite two longtime advocates to discuss the state of religious liberty in the U.S. They often oppose each other, but sometimes find themselves on the same side. Reverend Barry Lynn is the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, an organization that calls itself one of the foremost defenders of the separation of church and state. J. Allen Seculo is chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, a legal advocacy group which is, quote, specifically dedicated to the ideal that religious freedom and freedom of speech are inalienable, God-given rights. Welcome to Justice Talking. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'd like to ask both of you what you think freedom of religion meant to the framers of the Constitution. We just spoke with Stephen Waldman, the editor-in-chief of BeliefNet.com, and what I found fascinating about him and the book that he's written is that he said the founders saw separation of church and state as a way to really create a vital religious tradition in America. I'll start with you, Barry. I, I think that uh, Stephen Waldman's right about that. I think that this was part of the importance that Madison and to a slightly lesser degree Jefferson saw. He wanted to guarantee that there was, in fact, a strong religious sentiment unencumbered by government regulations. On the other hand, it's also true that Thomas Jefferson would not sign, for example, declarations of prayer or Thanksgiving resolutions that were sent to him by the United States Congress. He didn't think the government should in any way push 
or uh, use what we might today call a bully pulpit uh, to promote religion. And James Madison was so interested in distancing himself and the, and the federal government from any religious matters that he even objected in the 1790 census form uh, to the question, are you a member of the clergy? Felt that even counting the number of clergy in the country was somehow a violation of religious freedom. Jay, what do you think the founders meant when they talked about freedom of religion? Well, I think first that they, they, they did desire a robust religious expression uh, as part of their private sentiment in their individual lives. And there was one thing I think Barry and I would clearly agree on. They did not want a Church of England. I mean, they did not want a national church. Um, some of the states, when they – and Steve Walton puts his, points this out in his book – I think correctly so. Some of the states adopted uh, state forms of church governance or uh, churches that were adopted and approved by the state. I don't like that. And, and But the founders, I think, really did want this robust free expression. How that termed and how that came to be out of the, the First Amendment's Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause then became judicial interpretation. So, you know, Steve Waldman, I think, successfully in one sense presented a good case, some of which I agree with, some of which I do not. And I suspect Barry would say the same thing, although it might be on different parts of it. Um, But I think the one thing that is clear in that uh, no matter how you view religious liberty generally, the United States is blessed in the sense that we do have a robust religious expression and religious freedom, more so really than any other country uh, in the world. When you look at some of the other countries uh, where you've got totalitarian religious regimes in place or the government is the religion, uh, that's a very different situation than the American experience uh, completely. Well, you know, it's a robust debate, but the good news also, in addition to the robustness of the debate, is that in general, in the 200-plus years of our constitutional history, we have not had government making what are essentially religious determinations. It's when they do that that you find people who feel like outsiders, who are treated by the law as outsiders, and where you get the incredible level of violence that sometimes occurs when religious dissidents say, you know, we are not going to take this anymore. We're going to literally sometimes fight the government by whatever means possible. Well, let me ask you both, when it comes to religious freedom, where have you both been on the same page and where have you differed? We'll start with you, Jay. Well, I tell you, I think the area that I would say we probably have agreed on, if you just look at the cases over the years, uh, any of the, what I would call the literature distribution cases, the, the pure speech cases, the cases where Barry would say, yeah, this is a speech case, the soapbox orator, the distribution of a, of a pamphlet in a public park or a public sidewalk, where the government clearly is not involved. I think the biggest area of disagreement uh, would be in the context of religious expression and the schools, which is a much more difficult case all the way around, but I think there's probably our greatest area of difference. And uh, Barry, what would you say? Well, I'd certainly agree on the literature distribution cases. I would, I do want to allow people the opportunity to evangelize, make an effort to convert, and do that in public spaces without unnecessarily restrictive regulations by government. We also agree on some of the free exercise of religion issues, what I'd call the legitimate, the real free exercise of religion questions. That is, if a municipality, for example, decides to ban the sacrifice under the right of rites of Santeria, a religion uh, practiced in parts of South America and in Florida, and say you can't ever sacrifice an animal, your rights don't matter. I suspect Jay and I, I I believe I recall correctly, that we were both on the same side of that. Yes, we did. Reverend Barry Lynn is the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Jay Sekulow is chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. 
Uh, I'd like to turn to the military for a moment. The Military Religious Freedom Foundation, or MRFF, has said they've received more than 5,000 complaints about Christian evangelism, mostly from Christians, charging that certain types of Christianity are being promoted over others. There have been several recent lawsuits about this. Barry, do you think there's a culture in the military that supports evangelical Christianity or even outright promotion of it? I'm sorry to say that it is true, and in fact, Americans United did one of the first studies of activities at the United States Air Force Academy, where we found a lot of proselytizing. And the important thing to remember here is this isn't one cadet in that case, or in in some of the subsequent cases of one uh, grunt saying to another, you know, do you believe in Jesus? What we're worried about is the efforts on the part of superior officers to exercise undue command influence, because in the military, uh, certainly, is a place where if you get along, you go along. You tend to get your career advanced, sometimes more than somebody else who's is going to argue with his officer or her officer about matters like religion. So there's a serious culture of evangelism by officers, which I do think represents a profound problem for the United States military and for real religious freedom. You've got to be able to say no when your commanding officer says, let's all pray, and not, as in one case uh, represented by the, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, where you don't get told, uh, if you don't want to pray, you probably shouldn't be sitting here eating with us, sit in the corner. Jay, where do you stand on the cases that have come before the military by people upset with certain kinds of proselytizing? You know, I've looked at the cases, and most of the cases, when it comes down to them, none of them have been really litigated, so you, you don't know what the evidence is. But the fact that what I'm finding is, uh, it's kind of the opposite end of this. It's a, it, part of the same continuum, but another problem, and that is, you get an oversensitive military um, in the sense of oversensitive that there's a few complaints filed and therefore they pr- pass these broad-based laws so that a, a chaplain in the you know Air Force is afraid to end their prayer in Jesus' name or a, a rabbi is afraid to say the Shema in Hebrew, which is uh, you know the Jew- famous Jewish prayer because it might offend somebody. Uh, and then I think just about every religious group uh, or pretty much is represented within the military chaplaincy corps. But uh, you, no one should be penalized. Look, I, I don't think anybody thinks you should be penalized if you don't believe even a particular doctrine, that you should be denied uh, success in the military or anything like that. I think that would be wrong. So you would say that, for example, I I don't know if all the evidence is in here either, but you'd also say that specialist Jeremy Hall, the one who was an atheist, uh, and apparently he was sent back to the States from Iraq after he was threatened and needed protection. Uh, So, I mean, I'm I'm wondering, Jay, if you feel the freedom of religion, the freedom of religion also means the freedom so you don't have to be religious. Oh, absolutely. Look, absolutely. And I, I think this idea, I mean, I've represented speech cases before at the Supreme Court of the United States for groups I completely disagree with, uh, whether it's on the religious groups like uh, Hare Krishna, I don't accept their theology, or the National Democratic Policy Committee uh, on a speech case that I argued almost two decades ago. I mean, that's just part of it. But you don't get penalized because you don't have... Uh, you don't ex- uh, you know subscribe to a particular belief, and if someone was being literally penalized for that, that's I mean I, I can't imagine anybody saying that that's appropriate. No, but uh, there go well, on. Well, there is a kind of 
naivete. I usually don't say that about Jay, but when it comes to the military, and I spent a couple years uh, early in my life uh, editing a military law magazine, and uh, what we're talking about is the command influence, the fact that some superior officer is telling you or hinting to you or sometimes simply commanding you to do something that you find objectionable. That's the real problem. Chaplains are there to serve the religious needs of people who come to them. That's historically been their role. They are not there to try to convert everyone else that they come in contact with into the faith that they happen to have and for which they have been endorsed by their denomination. Reverend Barry Lynn is the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Also with me is Jay Seculo, chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. We're talking about religious freedom on Justice Talking. I'm Margo Adler. I'd like to turn to politics for a minute. I'd like to ask each of you what you thought of the presidential debate on spirituality and religion that was sponsored by Sojourners last June. It was addressed by the Democratic contenders, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards. People said this never could have happened even four years ago. I know people who loved it. I know people who couldn't even watch it. Was it an appropriate (laughs) use of religion in the public square? I'll start with you, Barry. Uh, I thought it was terrible and it essentially was repeated in the so-called Compassion Forum also when the host herself said, uh, some people think there's already too much talk about religion, so you may be uncomfortable with this. I raised my hand. I don't think she could see me through the set, although who knows? Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to expect candidates to answer questions like, "What? what's your favorite Bible verse? Because it doesn't really tell us much. It doesn't humanize candidates. If you want to just do that, ask them what their favorite movie is, their favorite Jack Nicholson line in a movie, something like that. And to ask questions, as uh, one of the hosts did uh, in one of those debates, what's your greatest sin? Senator John Edwards was then in the in the race and said, you know, that's really between God and myself. That was the best answer any candidate yep. has given on a religion question so far through this religion-saturated presidential primary season. Ironically, the Compassion Forum uh, that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton did attend, they were, along with the Senator John McCain, invited at about the same time to appear in Philadelphia at a forum on science, you know, not a physics test, just a forum on how do you develop science policy, a really important issue. They all declined to go. I think their priorities are wrong. They're running for the national commander-in-chief, chief executive officer, not for pastor-in-chief. Jay? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think what was smart uh, about it, I, I'm, I don't like the, I'm with Barry. I said, you know, what is your favorite Bible verse? What Bible, meant, you know, what's the greatest sin in your life? To, I mean, that is, I think John Edwards did give the right answer. But the fact that within the democratic dialogue, there's a, a discussion of faith, uh, I don't think is a bad thing. Now, I, I, I'm not wild about the forum either. I think that's an awfully, it's a soundbite forum. It's who can out God who. Uh, that's not good. But I think the fact that there's a serious discussion about faith in a good way. Now, I've gone on radio when Barack Obama's been attacked, you know, allegedly being Muslim or allegedly this. And I, I've, I've really cautioned people to draw these conclusions from somebody because of their name. Uh, and especially when someone in Obama's case, Senator Obama's case, where he says, the opposite, that he is, in fact, a Christian. So I think, but look, the Democratic Party, smart this time from a political standpoint, is saying we're not writing off the religious vote, whether it's the Christian vote, whether it's the uh, Catholic vote, we're not going to write it off. 
I don't know what's going to happen, you know, as we're talking about this. I'm not so sure what's going to happen on the other side, on the Republican side. Maybe they are writing off the religious vote. I don't know. Uh, so it's a very interesting dynamic right now, what's happening. How it plays out, ultimately, uh, we'll find out in November. I don't want, I'm with Barry on this. I don't like this idea that we have a debate on faith. You know, am I more religious than you are? Uh, I think in the normal conversation and normal discussions on an interview, it's fine. When you start debating it, it uh, gets a little dangerous. We have very little time, so I'm going to ask you one last question. We're living in a time and place where multiculturalism is the reality. I'm wondering if both of you could speak to what challenges or opportunities this poses to religious freedom and religious expression. I'll start with you, Jay. Well, I'm the grandson of Russian immigrants to the United States. My grandparents came into the United States in 1914 through Ellis Island. And they left Russia, as many Jews left Russia at that particular time, because of the increased persecution of Jews in Russia. So I have this uh, real respect and admiration for the religious experience of America. Now, I say that, and, and this is not popular on my with among a lot of conservatives, but I think there is a common tapestry within the American experience, and some people call it civic religion, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, generally for the country. We have enjoyed a period for a very, since our founding of religious liberty, of religious expression that is far beyond what any other country has experienced, our freedom of speech and freedom of association to believe or not believe. And that is what makes our country not only great but unique. And I would hate that we would lose the heritage of our founders uh, and, and the, the heritage of our country and understand there are a lot of people that left much – came over on very difficult trips uh, from a long distance – some survived, some did not, to experience uh, what we have, the rich history we have. Within a, it's within a Judeo-Christian tradition in America, but it's even broader than that. It is this fundamental understanding of liberty and freedom, which I believe, as the founders did, that that was a God-given inalienable right. Barry? I'm going to have to say an amen, but with a footnote to that. I do believe that... <laughs> I do believe that Jay's onto something. You know, there are 2,000 identifiable religions in this country today, about 15 to 20 million atheists, non-believers, uh, and uh, humanists. That's a beautiful mosaic. It, it encourages robust dialogue and debate about some of the most important issues, not just of our time, but of human history. Is there purpose to the universe? If so, what is it? All of that's a good thing. The only footnote would be when we talk about civic religion or civil religion, we often talk about what politicians tend to do, which is to assume that everybody, A, believes in a God and that it really doesn't matter too much more what than that, what that God is all about. Thus, the apparent uh, requirement in Washington that every politician and every speech on every topic imaginable with the three-word phrase, God bless America. That's civil religion at its worst. I, I don't think Jay's a, 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 you know, proving of that, but if he, if he was, then it, I'd have to put two footnotes in. Reverend Barry Lynn is the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Jay Sekulow is chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. Thank you both for being on our show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Coming up, we look at freedom of religion behind bars. The state has to respect your objections when you as a prisoner say, I really need a kosher meal. The state has to have a very good reason for denying you that right. But it's not just about keeping kosher. 
prisoners of minority faiths face other obstacles as well. If you get a series of Muslims kneeling on a prayer rug doing prayers toward Mecca, that doesn't look like typical Protestant Christianity. So the people in the prison system think there's something potentially wrong with it or it might be a security issue or something like that. Stay with us. Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication. Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at westlegaledcenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, What It Says, What It Means, A Hip Pocket Guide. The Hip Pocket Constitution is available at justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. After nine years and more than 300 shows, Justice Talking is going off the air this summer. We've covered some of the major constitutional battles of the past decade, as well as wrestled with issues like national security, free speech, and health care. We hope you'll share with us some of your favorite Justice Talking programs. Did you have any of those driveway moments when you were listening to our show? We hope you'll share your memories with us. You can email us at jtinfo at justicetalking.org. This is Justice Talking, where we make the connection between law, justice, and American life. I'm Margot Adler. On today's show, we're looking at religious liberty in America. But with more than two million criminals in U.S. prisons, what religious rights do you have if you have no liberty? I'm joined by Robert Tuttle. He's a professor at the George Washington University Law School. Welcome to Justice Talking. Thanks very much for having me. First, can you explain the history of faith-based initiatives and how they worked their way into the U.S. prison system? What changed in the 1990s to make federal funding of religious programs acceptable? I think there are two different questions that are part of the question you asked. That's fine. The first is, right, the, first is the question about, uh, about funding and government funding, which we don't tend to think of principally as a question of religious liberty. Um, but as a question of the Establishment Clause or how much the government can support religion. And there's been a dramatic change over the last 20 years in what the government can pay for. It used to be that the government simply couldn't give money to any ongoing religious enterprise. And now the limitation is much narrower. The rule now is that the government simply can't fund religious experience directly. And so in terms of the faith-based initiative, what that's meant uh, is that government can give money to religious groups, whether they're working in social welfare activities or working in the prisons, but there's still a limitation that they can't give money um, for things that are religious in their, in their character, like worship or religious instruction. Why are prisons required to provide inmates with a means to practice their religion? Right. I mean, the state, by putting you in prison, uh, potentially interferes quite significantly with your access to religious experience. Uh, and so the state has to respect your objections. When you as a prisoner say, I really need a kosher meal, the state has to have a very good reason for denying you that right. What most prisoners experience in terms of religious 
uh, liberty in the prisons is not because of judicial mandate. Um, it's because of a chaplaincy program. And that's something that the government voluntarily sets up. The government's allowed to provide voluntary religious experience. So I gather that sometimes the line can be crossed. And I know that in December of last year, a federal appeals court ruled that the Interchange Freedom Initiative, that religious program, which is part of Chuck Colson's prison ministry, violated the separation of church and state. The program was instituted in the Iowa Corrections Department to help prisoners reenter civilian life. Bob, explain what happened in this particular case and why did the court find this religious program to be unconstitutional? Well, if you think back again to this idea of what it is that makes chaplaincy constitutional, where the government is responding to needs of prisoners and responding in a way that is indifferent to the particular religious experience anybody might have, interchange doesn't come close to fitting that description. The government is uh, deciding, along with the folks from, from interchange, of course, that the best way to help prisoners is that they be religiously transformed, and not just religiously transformed in general, but transformed in a way that is peculiarly Protestant evangelical. So the government didn't ask prisoners what they wanted. It, along with interchange, said, well, this is what we're offering. Um, So if you think about a chaplaincy program as responding to prisoners' needs and a social welfare kind of program as furthering broad social goals, you can get some sense for why the interchange program really fell on the social welfare side of it. And if that's the case, then the rules on funding apply, which is you can pay religious organizations, but you can't pay for religious experience. And religious experience was you know, intertwined in everything that interchange did. Recently, uh, there was an important piece of legislation, RLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. It was passed in 2000. The act was held up by the Supreme Court in the 2005 case Cutter versus Wilkinson. And it states that prisons receiving government funding must accommodate a prisoner's religious beliefs unless that accommodation poses a security risk or disruption. So, Since the law was passed, has the situation changed in prisons a lot? How much? How little? Um, Give me some examples. Well, there is an immense amount of litigation. Uh, I mean, every week uh, I I track, not so closely, but closely enough to see that there are perhaps a dozen or more new cases filed. Every week? um, Or acted on every week. I mean, it's just huge. The, The disputes are predictable. There are disputes over the kinds of religious uh, objections to particular f- food or work requirements that, that some inmates may experience, access to particular religious leaders or resources from the outside. And prison officials, whether they have good reasons or simply are you know, resorting to bureaucratic intransigence, don't want to do it. Um, I, I would be surprised if the success rate of prisoners in these suits is much higher than most other types of prisoner-generated litigation. One of the stipulations in our lupa is that the religious accommodation provided by the prison doesn't pose a security threat. Uh, and I can see uh, if we're talking about a kirpan, you know, the long right. metal dagger, for example, that's used in, in Sikh religious ceremonies, I believe. Um, but last year, federal prisons began taking religious books off prison library shelves. And then after a while, they put them back. What's going on here? On the face of it, uh, taking away religious books seems like a pure and simple constitutional violation. 
Well, it would be a constitutional violation if we weren't talking about prisons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. And, uh, and you know, a restriction on access to reading materials has long been part of, of, of American corrections uh, philosophy. If the concern was that certain uh, reading materials incited violence, even uh, incited hatred toward other groups, then um, maybe prison officials would be justified in doing it. I didn't ever see a very good explanation of why the particular books that they asked to be removed were being removed. It, the challengers on this one seemed to me to have the much better of the, of the argument. Robert Tuttle is a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. Thank you so much for coming on Justice Talking. Thank you very much. We now turn to Reverend Patrick McCullum. He's director and chair of the National Correctional Chaplaincy Directors Association. He's also the statewide Wiccan chaplain for the California Department of Corrections. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much, Margo. As a chaplain in the California Department of Corrections, you see firsthand the ability or inability of a prisoner to practice his or her religion. Give me some examples of the kind of discrimination that takes place against those who practice various minority religions. Well, um, the primary thing that takes place is that they don't get accommodation at all. Uh, in many of the correctional systems, uh, the primary mainstream faiths uh, have chaplains, chapel time, and things like that. But the minorities are often not on the chapel calendars. Uh, they don't get access to their religious materials. They don't get time off work to go to services. And the services are often held on days that are not their particular religious days. So in a number of systems, it's taken years and years and years for them to be able to get Fridays off, for example, where in Protestant Christianity, every Sunday is actually a day off in the prison in general, so anyone can come. You recently testified in front of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and, and you said that state and federal prisons operate under a dominant religion lens factor. Talk about what you mean by that. First, you have to understand that prisons are based on the penal system, which is the idea of penance. It's actually based on uh, Christian theology to begin with. And so the original idea of a person going to prison is they come to prison, they find God, they're redeemed, and so they're consequently ready to go back into society. All the systems are set up to view things through the lens of Protestant Christianity. An example, if someone were giving a religious service and they all sat in pews and the minister stood up at front and preached them about what they need to do in order to get to heaven— that kind of a service would be accommodated with no problem because it looks like Protestant Christianity. If you get a series of Muslims kneeling on a prayer rug doing prayers toward Mecca, that doesn't look like typical Protestant Christianity. So the people in the prison system think there's something potentially wrong with it or it might be a security issue or something like that. The Wiccans, for example, were not allowed to practice in a circle because they wanted them to sit in pews and have their chaplain, minister, stand up front at a podium. What kind of accommodations are prisoners asking for? Well, most all the faith groups are asking for the basic things that would replicate their practice on the outside if they were not in prison. And the primary reason the minority faiths are asking for this is because the, major the majority faiths, primarily Protestant Christianity, gets everything that they get on the outside. So they have chaplains, Bibles, Bible classes, movies, uh, concerts, 
And then at the same time, the minority face might be being denied something like the ability to have a cup or a prayer rug or something like that. So the minority face are basically saying that, you know, if you're going to give the Protestants all the things that they would get on the outside, then we'd like to be able to have some kind of an equal treatment. Um, I noticed that I received a letter from a a prisoner who was in a federal prison and was allowed to be in a grove under a trees to do a Norse religion. And he said his ceremony was, he showed, he sent me pictures of the ceremony. They had a staff and it was right next to the Native American sweat lodge. And at the same time that I'm receiving this, I receive a letter from somebody who says I can't even receive a, a book on Wicca, et cetera. So there must be real differences in the prisons. And I'm wondering if there are different that can be looked at if they're federal, uh, state, uh, private correctional institutions. Um, do the differences come out that way, or is it just the luck of the draw? The federal system, for the most part, takes the position that if the courts rule that you have to accommodate a particular religion or religious practice, then that's the law, and they move forward and they change their policies to meet that. So for the most part, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is pretty good uh, they still slip up and make some mistakes, but they're pretty good about following the law. Many of the state's prisons take the position of state's rights over federal rights and will actually directly oppose something that the federal government has mandated through the law. I've actually been in states speaking to uh, administrators of correctional systems who said things like, so the Supreme Court ruled this you don't see the Supreme Court here now, do you? And what about private prisons? Uh, private prisons right now seem to be the biggest problem with religion because the private prisons are almost exclusively administrated by contract. And the companies that win the contracts are primarily evangelical Christian-based organizations and so um, they run the prisons and, of course, make profits and such. But they also often limit religion more significantly than the states or the federal system do, other than evangelical Protestant Christianity. What, in your view, is the best way to create prison environments free from religious discrimination? Well, the first thing we have to do is educate the prison administrators and the people who legislate the laws my agency, the National Correctional Chaplaincy Directors Association, trains administrators about religion and about what the law says. So they actually get the opportunity to know what it is they're supposed to do. If we just follow the law, there won't be any problems with religious accommodation in prisons. The big problem is a lot of administrators feel that they are above the law and that religion trumps the law. And so because of faith practices of their own, they will discourage some groups and encourage others. Reverend Patrick McCollum is director and chair of the National Correctional Chaplaincy Directors Association. Thank you so much for coming on our show. You're welcome, Margo. Thank you. For this show on religious freedom, an issue I hold close to my heart, I thought I would end on a personal note. I spent last July 4th at Arlington Cemetery. I hadn't been there in almost 40 years. I think the last time I went was to honor the memory of John F. Kennedy. I had forgotten how impressive Arlington was, how quiet, 
those rows of white headstones in endless lines, disappearing into the distance like an ocean, farther than you can see. I was there for a religious ceremony honoring a soldier and his wife who had died. The headstone had the husband's name, Army Captain William O'Rourke, on one side, and the wife's, Jan Deanna O'Rourke, on the other. He was a Christian, she was a Wiccan. One side of the headstone had a cross, the other a pentacle. The service was performed jointly by Barry Lynn, a Christian minister who you just heard on this program, and by Selina Fox, a Wiccan priestess, and, full disclosure, the minister at my wedding 20 years ago. About 25 people stood in a circle, bouquets of flowers lay by the headstone. There was a simple interfaith ceremony. There were soldiers in uniform, there were army wives, there were friends and supporters. But the only reason this ceremony was able to take place was because of a decade-long fight for religious freedom. As part of a settlement of a federal lawsuit brought by Americans United for the separation of church and state, the Veterans Administration finally added the pentacle to the list of acceptable religious symbols that can be included on the grave markers of veterans. Most people still don't know that there are now 39 symbols that are approved for use on grave markers of a veteran who dies. Some of the symbols might surprise you. There are many Christian symbols, including one for the United Methodists, one for the Serbian Orthodox Church, and many more. Jews, Baha'is, Hindus, Unitarian Universalists all have their symbol on the list. There's even a symbol for atheists, an atom with an A in the center. But Wiccans have been trying to get their symbol, the pentacle, a five-pointed star in a circle, recognized for years. Wicca has often been confused with Satanism, and at one point, George W. Bush called it not a real religion. The fight was led by families of vets who died in Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam. It may seem like a little thing, but having your own religious symbol at the time of your death is important to some people, and it speaks to the traditions of religious freedom that are a crucial part of our Constitution. Now, one year since the fight for the pentacle was won, there have been 26 pentacle grave markers issued. They lie in graveyards in 14 states. Five are at Arlington. Selena Fox told me she's thankful that ordering a grave marker with a pentacle is now as routine a process as ordering a marker with any other emblem. And thinking of the multitudes of beliefs and faiths in this nation, I'll be curious and delighted to know what the 40th symbol will be. What do you think religious liberty means in America today? And do you think your religious belief or non-belief is protected in your everyday life? Let us know at justicetalking.org. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'm Margot Adler. Justice Talking is produced by Ingrid Lakey, Cara McGurk, and Viet Le. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. Annie jurgens Bear coordinates outreach. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music, engineering by Audio Post Philadelphia. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania or NPR. This is NPR's Justice Talking. Support for NPR comes from the Annenberg Foundation, advancing public well-being through improved communication, 
on the web at AnnenbergFoundation.org. From Kaufman, the foundation of entrepreneurship, celebrating entrepreneurs who start businesses and change the world, on the web at Kaufman.org. And from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at Hewlett.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.